You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 24 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. This week is Sleep Awareness Week, so we thought we would invite some of the NTSB's fatigue experts to talk with us about sleep health, sleep disorders, and the impact fatigue has on transportation safety. Leah and I are excited to have joining us today Dr. Jana Price, a senior human performance investigator in the NTSB Office of Research and Engineering. Jeff Marcus, who is the acting chief of our safety recommendations division, and Dr. Mary Pat McKay, who is the chief medical officer for the NTSB and also in the Office of Research and Engineering. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. So as we get started, it's customary to have everyone have an opportunity to introduce themselves and share their journey to NTSB briefly. And as we're doing that, since today we're talking about fatigue, I would love if, if you could share with us how you got involved in the area of fatigue. So I'm just going to start out with Mary Pat and just give us a little overview of your background. So I'm a board certified emergency medicine physician, and I started out in academic emergency medicine, Mm -hmm. um, practicing mostly on the East Coast, and um, started doing research in transportation safety and trauma care, and really got interested in fatigue, mostly in relationship to my own fatigue, working shifts in the emergency department, Mm -hmm. and the recognition that um, transitioning from day to night and night to day gets much more difficult as you age in position and are asked to continue doing those things. Sure. Um, I came to the NTSB about six years ago, and it was very obvious pretty quickly that the issue that we see the most in terms of medical issues and fatigue mm-hmm. is undiagnosed or untreated sleep apnea and the effects that has on transportation safety. Great. We're going to be getting more into that a little bit later. Jeff, would you introduce yourself? I... Uh... When I was in graduate school, I was in an Air Force-funded study looking at why pilots get injured in their spine when they eject out of high-performance aircraft. That led me to work for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration designing crash dummies. I did that for a number of years, and then I moved to Oklahoma at the Civil Water Medical Institute because I was really interested in aviation, and they do crash injury stuff in the aviation environment. That was good, but I wanted to come to the NTSB. I've been here about 20 years. Um, I've been working on safety recommendations during that period of time, and I noticed that we seem to have a lot of recommendations that in the early part of my career we were not making much progress on related to fatigue. Mm -hmm. When uh, we had a board member here named Mark Rosekind, who was one of the world's experts on fatigue, and... uh, I got a chance to work with him, and he sparked my interest even further in fatigue. So I've been following the recommendations. And I don't think I knew that you used to work for NHTSA as well. Yes. I did, and I, you know, obviously our paths did not cross there, but that's an interesting thing. I suspect I left there before you started. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Jana. Um, Yes, hello. I I think uh, I've been working in fatigue for a mighty long time now. More than 20 years ago, I was a graduate student at the University of Connecticut, where I had the honor of working with uh, a man named Donald Tipas, who had dedicated his life to addressing fatigue-related issues um, in nurses and uh, train crews. And I can remember that one of my earliest grad school experiences was listening listening to the recordings from the Exxon Valdez, 
um, accident that actually did involve fatigue. And so I um, ended up becoming very interested in it. I actually uh, did my dissertation spending a lot of 24-hour periods at truck stops and rest areas um, trying to understand brake-taking patterns of commercial truck drivers and why sometimes they were not able to stop and take a break because of crowding in, in those rest areas. And around the same time, the National Transportation Safety Board was actually making recommendations about that very topic. So um, it was just kind of a natural fit that I would come here and do work in human performance in transportation. And I've been working on fatigue factors ever since. And Jana, you were here. Um, I, I'm forgetting what episode it was, but um, in it's our almost exactly a year ago, yeah, that we you were here on the podcast Jana, um, about fatigue. So it's nice to be revisiting that with you and and have uh, another perspective from Mary Pat and Jeff today. So um, this week, as Stephanie mentioned, it's National Sleep um, <clears throat> or excuse me, Sleep Awareness Week, and um, the theme for this year is Begin with Sleep, and it's highlighting the importance of good sleep health. Um, for individuals for achieving their personal and professional goals. Um, before we jump into sleep um, and, and a little bit more on that, can you all describe what good, health, good sleep health means and its impact on transportation safety? Um, I'll take a stab at that. Um, so I think you mentioned this is Sleep Awareness Week. The National Sleep Foundation is certainly a big proponent of that. And they have said that most adults need seven to nine hours of sleep per night, uh, ideally. And, and young people, teens and children need even more than that. Um, ideally, that sleep would be at night <laughs> and uninterrupted. And, and I know that for many people that doesn't sound, that sounds pretty intuitive, but for uh, people who work shifts, Mary Pat mentioned her, her work in a hospital that involved working different hours of the day, that can be pretty challenging. So, so Leah, you asked about what's ideal. The mm -hmm. ideal is to have seven to nine hours of sleep during the nighttime uninterrupted, and, and that can promote you know, well-being, performance, and health. It's so, interesting what you say <clears throat> that when we have uh, talked to per teens in particular, um, when we give presentations on fatigue and uh, just general transportation safety, we say, teenagers, you all should be getting, you know, between eight and 10 hours of sleep. And there's like a general like, oh, my God, I never get that much sleep <laughs> in a night. And it's just so interesting that, you know, this is what we know. This is what's been proven as important and healthy. But so many people, and probably adults too, kind of balk at that concept of like seven to nine, eight to ten hours. Yeah, that hits close to home since I have a fifteen-year-old <laughs> at home, and it's a it's a very um, it's a conversation we have almost every night. Yeah. <laughs> um, we don't allow uh, technology in our children's rooms. I think that's a that can be a real challenge mm -hmm. for. Some families and some kids these days is, is letting go of devices that can keep them up. The reality is that adolescents undergo a shift in their, in their sleep needs. And actually, um, you know, we think of teens wanting to stay up late and, and sleep late. And, and that's not just a cultural thing. That's actually a biological thing. And so it can be very hard, actually, I think, for teenagers who are engaged in, you know, early morning school starts or sports activities that might take place before school 
because their brains are telling them to, to stay up a little later and sleep later, but sometimes the world isn't allowing them to have that extra sleep in the morning. So convincing teens that they need to get to bed earlier to make up for that can be a real challenge. And she, adults, I would too. Say I have, so my daughter's 13, and she just recently did a research project in school, interestingly enough, on teens and sleep. And uh, she has been using some of her knowledge that she gained to make uh, a better case for why she needs to, you know, have a later bedtime and different things. And I'm like, you're talking to the wrong person (laughs) about trying to make a case for, you know, why you should stay up until 10, but then be like, you know, impossible to get out of of bed in the morning. But it was interesting the things that she picked up on and how suddenly she has these symptoms that are, you know, because of of, uh, her not getting her sleep during the hours that she needs it. So... It's been pretty funny. But the effects of, of sleep, good, healthy, and long enough sleep on performance, which is sort of what we're talking a little yeah. bit about here, mm-hmm. are really well known. But the effects on health are also enormous. Yeah. It's less diabetes, better cardiovascular health, lower blood pressure. All of those things are um, amplified when somebody, all of those positive things are amplified when somebody gets sufficient sleep. Um, and insufficient sleep leads to the opposite outcomes and, and, and worse things happening to people. Yeah, Jeff, you mentioned Dr. Rosekind, who I happened to have an opportunity to hear speak again last, uh, last week or the week before at a fatigue conference. And I know one of the things that he often jokes about is that, you know, you get the idea that not having enough water, not having enough food could kill you. But he often says sl- not getting sleep can kill you, too, and that people mm-hmm. just really don't seem to understand how important that is to your overall health. Um, Jana, I know that um, you were talking about, you know, getting sleep at night. And um, Mary Pat, you were mentioning shift workers. And I know that we all are familiar with the idea of circadian rhythm. But would you guys mind digging into a little bit uh, more about circadian rhythm and why we naturally do want to or should be sleeping, um, you know, in those nighttime hours as opposed to trying to get our eight hours of sleep in the middle of the afternoon? Sure. And Mary Pat can elaborate on this too. But I mean, the basic idea is that our brains are biologically programmed for humans to be diurnal. We are not nocturnal. We are daytime creatures. I think most of us kind of intuitively know that we get tired at night and we are more alert during the day. But but the reality is that, that there is plenty of research that shows that um, you know, we really, our performance is, goes down markedly at night, uh, particularly in the early morning hours, um, say between, you know, 3 and 6 a.m. can be a really tough time for people to stay awake or to um, do things like drive or, you know, fly an airplane. Um, conversely, If you are in a position where you need to work during those times and sleep during the day, it can be really difficult to sleep, to sleep during, I'm sorry, if you're working at night, it can be really difficult to sleep during the day. So um, it's not to say that it can't be done. Um, You know, we have something called a sleep homeostat, which is kind of like, think of it like a gas tank, where if you've gone a long time without sleeping, regardless of the time of day, you're going to need to fill your sleep tank. And mm-hmm. so even if it's the middle of the day and you haven't slept in a long time, you're going to go to sleep, whether you want to or not sometimes. But the quality of the sleep that a person gets during the day is just necessarily not going to be as good as it would be during the night. 
And that can be for not just because of the circadian or internal reasons, but also because of daylight, because of, you know, things that are going on during the day. So um, I wouldn't want to suggest that you can't manage a shift work schedule because we know people do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with good uh, sleep hygiene, as they say, it can be done, um, but it's, it's not optimal. Sure. I know we talk a lot about kind of the, the sleep environment. We were just talking about technology, um, you know, not having your cell phone in your room and that sort of thing. But a sleep environment really isn't just limited to whether or not you have your cell phone or your iPad or a tablet or something in your room. It also happens to do with kind of what your home environment is. For example, you're talking about shift workers, you know, is the family involved with, um, if you know, mom or dad is a shift worker and they need to be sleeping during the day, what kind of activities are happening in the house around them? So there's a, a lot of things that go into that sleep, uh, healthy sleep environment. Um, right. I, I think there's an, an accident or, or an incident that uh, illustrates some of the, the issues with circadian rhythms. And air traffic controllers are always shifting their schedule. They, they work during the day and then over a short period of time, they'll work the mid-shift, and, and it's it's always a rotating shift. It's mm -hmm. difficult for them to get acclimated to that. There was an incident in Denver where they were doing work on the runway, and they do that overnight. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a notice that the runway was closed. <clears throat> there was a flight that was getting ready to take off, and the pilot, I don't think, knew or, or had forgotten about that notice, but he called the controller and said, I'd like to use this runway. Can I do that? And the controller cleared him to do it. So the plane took off on that runway with construction workers actively working on the runway. So right after that airplane took off, the foreman for the construction crew called the tower and said, did you just clear a flight to take off from this runway? Mm -hmm. And the controller said, yes, I did. And then he said, and the, the foreman said, well, we're going to end work tonight. And at that point, she finally realized what had happened. But I think this was a controller with a spotless record who was professional, who did everything right. But because of the shift schedules, because her the, the, the impact of that was that she had done something that she would have obviously known was not safe and was not proper. And I think that's the kind of thing that fatigue brings on. I think that sort of incident is probably something that a lot of people maybe everyone can relate to <clears throat> in terms of, you know, something just happens and like, I just, I didn't even realize that that was going on. And then connecting it back to, I didn't have a really solid night's sleep the night before. Um, you know, your mind just does not track exactly as, as it should or can when you've had adequate sleep. I think one thing that uh, you'll find in NTSB investigations where fatigue is considered as a possible issue is if you have an individual who has a good record, mm -hmm. they, they haven't had problems in the past, they have done well, they have good reviews, things of that sort, and then all of a sudden they make an almost mindless mistake. Mm -hmm. The question is, why would somebody who has a good record do something like this? And in many cases, you can look at fatigue as an underlying issue that led them to that. Yeah, I think our investigations have led to more than 200 recommendations across all modes of transportation yes. related to to fatigue, and it's actually been on the most wanted list um, all but, I think, two years since 1990. So it's definitely been uh, an issue that we've looked at for a long time. And, and 
the most wanted list didn't exist before 1990. Right. right. But <laughs> 2013-ish, I yeah. think it came off the list for like a year or something. And uh, But it's it's been back on. What makes fatigue such a challenge to manage, I guess, is, is a, the best way to describe it within the transportation environment? Well, one of the issues is that we're really bad at telling when we're fatigued. Okay, mm-hmm. everybody's had that feeling of it's sort of 8.30 in the morning and you've had a cup of coffee and you really feel like you're operating at 100%. Um, but 20 hours later, when you've had four more cups of coffee mm-hmm. and you're still at work trying to accomplish whatever it is that you do, um, you're, people are very unaware that they're fatigued. Um, and they may be unaware that they're fatigued and they may be, in fact, unaware that they're microsleeping. Um, and and think that they're still doing okay, that they're, they've gone from the green zone, they're really in the red zone, but they kind of think they're in the yellow zone. Um, and so a piece of it is that we're not very aware of our own fatigue. We may be a little bit more aware of each other's fatigue, that somebody sure. is underperforming mm-hmm. or slow or micro-sleeping in sure. front of you. Um, but we don't have a culture that says, hey, you're really tired, why don't you go take a nap? That's not part of work culture either. Right. Um, and then there are lots of other reasons other than a person's decisions or work-related issues why they may be fatigued. Anyone who's ever had a newborn knows what that's like. <laughs> yeah. you know, so there are some life things that go on that complicate um, that need, complicate the success in getting seven to nine uninterrupted hours sure. of sleep <laughs> in the dark. Um, and so I think, you know, the, there's a cultural piece of it, and then there's a, the fact that we're just not biologically aware um, of our own performance degradation when we're fatigued. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think I would add to that just technology, which has, you know, given us so many wonderful things, has also given us the opportunity to have a 24-hour society, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. When we, didn't, when we didn't have light bulbs, it was a lot easier to know when it was bedtime. But, in t- you know, every... Every new technological innovation that makes it easier to, for example, you know, get your products overnight is also having a ripple effect on all of those individuals who need to get those products to you overnight. So I think, you know, our society demands 24-hour everything now. Mm -hmm. And so both in terms of getting enough sleep and uh, circadian issues, it's just becoming a, a big an issue that that is just a part of the fabric of our society. It's true. And just to, you know, reflect a little bit more, I remember way back, a long time ago, when, you know, around 10 o'clock, or maybe it was a little bit later, TV, if you had the TV on, all programming just kind of shut down. And it was like, well, okay, I guess it's <laughs> time with the, the rainbow colors. <laughs> yeah, on it's right. time to turn off the TV. And today you don't have to turn off the TV ever if you don't want to. It's, you know, there's always going to be something on and you know that can be a very big deterrent you know as we've learned with the you know just screen time in general it hinders sleep and not just your phones but tv and computers etc jeff you and um dr rosekind former ntsb um, board member and then also nitsa administrator looked at um, a significant number of ntsb investigations over a about a 15-year period of time and you found um, that about 20% of all the major investigations that we investigated had fatigue as either a contributing or the actual probable cause of an, of an accident or crash. Can you talk a little bit about um, how many investigations that included and how the 
board determines when fatigue is is one of those causal or contributory factors? Well, you have to realize that, um, first of all, that we tend to choose the accidents that we investigate. So it, it, would, <clears throat> it would not be a fair comparison to say that 40% of all accidents, and that was what we found, was that 40% of all of our highway reports, uh, highway investigations, were related to fatigue. But that doesn't mean that if you go out on the road, 40% of all accidents have right. that. It means that we found that. But it also means that the investigations that are important, so the NTSB considers which accidents to investigate because they represent important issues, they get high visibility, issues of that sort. So the issue, the accidents that are prominent, that are worthy of concern, have fatigue as an underlying issue in many cases. So there was differences in the modes. We found that 20% overall in all modes of transportation had fatigue as, like you say, a probable cause or a contributing cause or a finding. But there were differences in the modes. And if you went to highway, 40% of all of our investigations did that. Mm. And our investigations in highway tend to be motor coach, um, large truck. We do do some small school bus uh, (laughs) passenger carrying uh, vehicles. We also do passenger cars, but a a large majority of our highway investigations involve commercial operations and commercial vehicles. That's that's correct. let me just pull up the number. The, the number of investigations that we did was over that, it was about a 15-year period of time, the number of major investigations was 182. So... Um, Were those evenly distributed, like, you know, same number of highways, same number of aviation, same number of rail? Well, I'll just run down through, through the list. <laughs> yeah. There were 61 <laughs> aviation investigations, 38 highway, 41 railroad 26 marine, and 16 pipeline. Okay. When, when we're launched on an investigation um, in any mode, how do investigators determine if fatigue was a problem? Well, we look <laughs> at a lot of different things. Um, first, I'll emphasize that when, whenever we go on an investigation, we're out there to gather evidence about everything, mm-hmm. everything under the sun, you know, and we have multidisciplinary teams that go out and look at everything. So we're not really looking for any one cause sure. when we go out the door, um, as I'm sure you know. But in terms of, you know, if you're asking just about what types of evidence are particularly useful when we're looking at fatigue factors, I would uh, kind of boil it down to we look definitely at anyone who was really had may have played a role in that accident. So that doesn't always just involve the driver or the pilot, but it could involve anyone who played a role. We try to look at what we sometimes refer to as the 72-hour history, Mm -hmm. but really we look as far back as we can reliably get information about the activities of that individual. And there are so many different types of evidence that you can use to do that. One of them is just talking to the person if they survive to try to understand what were they doing, what was their... Uh, sleep, like how much were they sleeping? Were they sleeping well? Mm -hmm. So talking to a person or talking to their loved ones or next of kin can be very useful. But then we also look at a variety of other things. We look at records. We look at cell phone records. We look at 
um, the vehicle use. We look at schedules that an employer might have. Mm -hmm. So basically, we look at numerous different pieces of evidence to try to recreate that person's life for the days leading to the crash. Mm -hmm. And what that can help us do is not only understand what they were doing, but look for times when they could have been sleeping. So you can imagine that if an operator is deceased as the result of a crash, you know, we can't talk to them. We have to just rely on what we can recreate. And sometimes what we'll find is that there was so much activity going on in that person's life that there weren't times when we could identify when they would have had enough time to have sleep. Mm -hmm. So I'll mention um, a case that we had. We had a... Uh, a case not too long ago that happened in Laredo, uh, Texas, where a driver was driving a motor coach and um, was on a curve, and the the motor coach drifted out of the lane. The driver overcorrected, went off the road, and overturned the motor coach. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, we looked at that person's history and found that there were only a two, there was only a two hour window in the in the day before that crash when that individual had enough had time when he could have been sleeping. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one piece of evidence. We also look at health. Mm -hmm. We look at a person's health history and, and Dr. McKay may be able to elaborate more on that, but we look at things in their health history that might have indicated sleep disorders or might have indicated medications that would either cause you to be sleepy when, when you were awake mm -hmm. or cause you to be awake when you're supposed to be sleeping. Things sure. that would interfere with your sleep. And then finally, we look at the environment. We, we look at things that might be indicative of whether the, the crash itself may have involved um, a lapse of attention or the types of things that one would associate with a fatigue-related crash. Because just because an operator is very tired at the time of a crash doesn't necessarily mean that their fatigue led to that crash. We also need to look at the types of errors that occurred, if they occurred, sure. and whether those contributed to the crash. So that's kind of in a, in a nutshell the types of things we look at. So when it comes to medical conditions, we obviously look at medical records to see what conditions somebody had um, and, and whether or not they were being adequately treated. In an, in an accident back in Hoxie, Arkansas, in 2016, we had a fatal uh, freight train hit another freight train. Um, and when, the, when that happens in a freight train, that means that um, there are signals for about five miles ahead of the crash location that tell the conductor and the engineer and the locomotive that they're going to need to stop because it takes a really long time to stop a freight train. And so it means that two people in the cab ignored or failed to act on signals that they were well-trained on and understood sure. meant slow down, slow down, and stop. And in that accident, what we had was an engineer who had been diagnosed with severe obstructive sleep apnea but had never been treated. Mm -hmm. um, several years before the accident, he'd had a sleep test and a trial of CPAP, but there was no evidence that he had ever actually obtained the machine to give him the positive airway pressure to treat his sleep apnea. The accident occurred in the dark hours of the night, about 2.30 in the morning, in one of those critical circadian lows. Right. <clears throat> and the conductor, when we looked at his schedule, both of them were killed. Um, the conductor had... Uh, flip-flopped from day to night on his schedule, mm -hmm. his work schedule, 10 times in the preceding 30 days. Oh, wow. And so in addition to the issue, yes, he may have had adequate sleep opportunity, but his circadian rhythm was completely 
messed up. I don't know a better word for it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and we had evidence even before they missed these signals that they were inappropriately blowing the horn, which you do on a freight train when you're going through grade crossings, even in the middle of the night. Mm. So we know that they were impaired before they stopped responding at all. And, and that's very consistent with two people, middle of the night, nice warm locomotive, um, and they both fell asleep. Wow. Sure. Mary Pat, I know that um, quite a few times in, in our investigations, we'll find things where it's undiagnosed sleep apnea, you know, contributed to, to a crash or, or, ca- or caused the crash. Well, the driver, you know, who was affected by that. Why, why does that seem to be a common thing within the transportation environments that we're looking at to have undiagnosed sleep apnea? Is it hard to know if, if you have it or there are things that people should... Like, that sounds like me. I, I really should talk to somebody about that. Can you, can, before you answer, can you also just talk a little bit about what is obstructive well, sleep apnea yeah. <laughs> for our listeners who might not who might not know? Obstructive sleep apnea, sure, is, is essentially that the soft tissues of the back of your throat collapse and relax when you go to sleep. And if they relax too much, they obstruct the airflow and prevent you from breathing normally. Um, this is more common in heavyset people, but it can happen to thin people. Mm-hmm. It typically is associated with someone who snores audibly, and the snoring may stop or pause. So others who are around that person may go, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're not breathing when you're sleeping, or you're not breathing normally when you're sleeping. Um, it's pretty readily treatable in most people by the use of a machine that provides a little extra pressure into the airway to just keep it open and allow that person to breathe normally. It can also be treated with a number of other things, including a number of surgical procedures and dental applications and devices. Um, so it, it, it's something that's treatable just the way hypertension is treatable. If you have high blood pressure, you take pills for the rest of your life. It doesn't go away. We, just, we simply treat it and prevent the bad outcomes. And when we treat sleep apnea, what we find is that crash rates go down um, in transportation, performance goes up, and people's health improves. And really amazingly, people's personality improves. Mm -hmm. What we hear from patients is, my wife thinks I'm nicer. (laughs) (laughs) And and my kids like to hang out with me more. And so there really are a lot of benefits, not just in the transportation world. I think there's two things. One is um, physicians are not keyed in to... um, to start talking to someone who comes in complaining of being tired or fatigued, they're not necessarily keyed in to say, talk to me about your sleep habits, talk to me about your snoring, you know, what's going on with your sleeping. Much more likely to order some blood tests and test thyroid and some other things that can make you fatigued um, rather than having those conversations. Um, these days, getting a sleep test, which is the diagnostic study for sleep apnea, can be done at home. Um, is you usually have to go and get attached to the device so that you have it on correctly, although some people just send it to you in the mail and trust you to do it correctly. (laughs) Um, It can be used to diagnose sleep apnea, but not to prove that you don't have it in the home test. Uh, If you want more information, because there are lots of other sleep disorders, Mm -hmm. um, then you need to do a sleep test in a sleep lab um, where they're actually watching you sleep. Uh, and seeing how often you're moving, how often you're awake, um, what your breathing is like, what your oxygen saturation is like. What's really happening in sleep apnea is that your carbon dioxide gets too high and it arouses you to be awake. And people can have this happen as often as 150 times an hour. 
So they're awakened 150 times an hour while they're sleeping. (laughs) That causes fatigue. Right, right. (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. And and amazingly, some people who are awakened multiple times during the night don't know it. They're Mm -hmm. they're completely unaware. They're not they're not awake to the point of consciousness necessarily, but they're awakened to the point where it interrupts their normal sleep pattern. Uh, and that leads to the fatigue. But it's almost like when they do wake up in the morning, they don't feel rested. Right. They often don't feel rested. What's interesting in transportation is that there are some um, uh, questionnaires that can be administered to patients um, about how sleepy they are during the day. What we are, think we're finding now, particularly among railroaders, but in transportation in general, Um, People don't want to have this. They don't want to deal with having a CPAP. They don't necessarily want to deal with whatever it is. They just want to be able to sleep on their own. Um, And so they don't necessarily um, admit or they may not be really aware of how sleepy they are during the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, the criteria for getting tested, you know, gosh, you get tested and you don't have it, terrific, right? We're done. Um, but if you get tested and you don't have it when you're 30 and snoring and have a BMI of 25, doesn't mean you don't have it when you're 50 and have a BMI of, you know, 35 or 40. Sure. And that indicates obesity. Right. So the BMI might... is a measure of your weight versus your um, body surface area uh, and essentially is, is a measure of how heavy set you are. Over 30 is considered uh, obese. I think it might be good because it would be it would be good if everybody knew not necessarily that they had OSA, but what they should notice that would mean that they need to get a sleep study. So uh, correct me. Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, if you wake up and you're not rested, if you're falling asleep during the day, one of the classic tests is do you fall asleep at red lights? Now, I can tell you as an ER doc driving home after the night shift, yes, I would fall asleep at red lights. Mm, But I think that was an effective shift work rather than a sleep disorder per se. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it depends on the situation. Snoring or anyone telling you that you stop snoring in the middle of the night, that's something that needs to get checked out. Mm. Um, Particularly if your um, usual partner no longer is willing to sleep in the room with you. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a sign mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to get tested. Um, and people can struggle a little bit with the sleep device and getting comfortable with it. It may take some trial to get the right shape of the mask and the right tightness of the um, system, even the right amount of pressure to apply. Um, but once it's set up and working, really, I mean, people, ha- we have engineers in uh, in current investigations who've said, <laughs> this is a godsend, I'm going to use this every night. And in fact, do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, really, it's a matter of getting to the diagnosis. If the doctor doesn't suggest it, and you've said you're tired all the time, ask for a sleep study. Simple enough to do. Um, if you're um, if you're really thinking that your spouse has it, see if you can convince them to go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a medical condition. Again, it's the same as high blood pressure, or diabetes. It's something that you need to treat. If you lose a significant amount of weight, if you're overweight and you lose a significant amount of weight, you may no longer have it, but you need to mm. prove that, Sure, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just wanted to mention a case that we investigated not long ago that really illustrates you know, some of the horrible things that can happen 
um, from sleep apnea. We investigated a case that happened in Palm Springs, California in 2016 um, that happened in the early morning hours, um, you know, the tough time to be awake in the first place. It was a little after five in the morning. Mm -hmm. And the uh, California Highway Patrol was conducting some maintenance. And so they were closing down portions of the highway to change some power lines, to do some power line work, and they didn't want the traffic to flow through. So they had this traffic break. And so all the traffic had to come to a stop. Well, there was a truck, uh, a tractor-trailer truck, that came to a stop there and was waiting for the traffic break to clear. Um, What we later learned is that individual had obstructive sleep apnea and had fell asleep during the traffic break in his truck. And when the traffic break was cleared and traffic started flowing normally around that truck, he was still asleep. And um, unfortunately, what ended up happening is that a bus um, filled with people came upon that stopped tractor trailer in the middle of the highway, collided with it, and that resulted in the death of 12 passengers. And so it's really... Something I just want to emphasize, because I think um, Mary Pat did a great job of talking about the risk factors, Um, but one of the things I want to emphasize about um, losing sleep and its effects is that it's very insidious. It's not something that just kind of ramps up and you're more and more tired and your performance goes down. It can happen in an instant. Mm -hmm. This nodding off uh, micro-sleeps, if you will, can just happen in a, in a moment. And when you're on the highway, um, a three-second micro-sleep at 65 miles an hour is the equivalent of a, of a football field. Mm-hmm. So the things that can happen in those very small moments can, can mean so much. And these things don't happen in isolation. So also in the Palm Springs crash, the motor coach driver had had f- about four hours of sleep opportunity in the preceding 34 hours of daylight or time. Mm -hmm. Um, So he too was markedly fatigued at the time of the crash. And unfortunately, we see this interaction between scheduling and sleep opportunity and medical conditions. So again, you know, Janet, we've been really focused on sleep apnea, which is the thing that we see the most. But we also see people taking sleep-inducing medications. And frankly, the one that we see the most, at least in fatally injured general aviation pilots, is diphenhydramine, which is also sold as Benadryl and also sold as a sleep aid commonly with the name Unisom. Mm -hmm. It's the non-habit-forming, over-the-counter sleep aid. The problem with it is it's really long-acting. It does make people really sleepy. And then there's a hangover effect when you wake up Mm -hmm. where you still have performance degradation. And we're seeing this um, present, physically present, in the tissues of about 10% of our fatally injured uh, pilots. And really what that means is those people are driving around too. Now, our fatally injured pilots tend to be older, generally men, have some other medical problems. So they don't necessarily represent the population of all drivers. But the use of sleep-inducing medications and the failure to allow them to wear off before engaging in transportation activities is yet another aspect of this issue of fatigue. I, I think, so I've had 
you know, thankfully we have the opportunity to hear you all speak often. And, and Mary Pat, I know I was listening to you talk to a group of um, school bus drivers, actually, and you were talking about like seasonal allergy medication, which I never even honestly thought I'm familiar with, you know, Benadryl and it makes, you know, you sleepy, but I never thought that just some of the other seasonal allergy medication would. And I actually changed the one I was taking, not realizing that it had it in there. But um, I know that I think in the aviation community, there's actually kind of a best practice for if you're taking a medication that might have diphenhydramine or a sleep aid that you wait for. 40 hours after uh, so it's it depends five times yeah. the dosing interval or five, the recommendation from the FAA is five times the dosing interval so if you're taking impairing medication a friend of mine yesterday had knee surgery she had arthroscopy and I was talking to her on the phone and she was taking opioid pain medicine because she just had knee surgery mm-hmm. well their recommendation is okay you know you had knee surgery you need this stuff for a period of time but you need to wait at least five dosing intervals after the last dose before you engage in an activity that really requires your performance, like flying an airplane. And so the dosing interval is the thing on the box or the pill bottle that says take every four hours or six hours or eight hours or once a day. Mm -hmm. um, And you just multiply that times five. Um, You multiply the larger number times five. uh, And you just wait that long and really... That's a pretty conservative way of going about making sure that any impairing effects from that drug or hangover effects from that drug are likely mitigated by the time you're engaging in transportation activities. And I think it's interesting that um, your your self-perception of impairment um, would say that you're not you're not um, impaired. You, you perceive yourself as being not impaired much sooner than the five times. Sure. Well, and it, it, it's a conservative a- estimate. You are right. You're, the clinical effectiveness is probably gone before that stage, but the idea is to make a safe uh, discrimination. And really what that is is pretty much all of that drug is out of your system um, by the time the five times is up. It, it has to do with the half-life of the drug itself. Um, but it's a pretty reasonable way to, to to go about it if you're really concentrated on safety. Sure. And, and we're talking about, you know, commercial transportation, that sort of thing. But that applies to every driver. Mm-hmm. Your, right. your everyday mm-hmm. vehicle is uh, <laughs> is something that you should also be taking that in, into consideration before you're getting behind the wheel. And <clears throat> Mary Pat, um, beyond the dosing interval issue, would you think that people who are speaking with their doctors or pharmacists could also ask about alternative drugs that might not be as sedating. Absolutely. And, and that goes to what Stephanie was saying, which is when it comes to allergy medication, there are a couple that don't cross the blood-brain barrier and therefore are not sedating. There are others mm-hmm. that are sedating to various degrees, and different individuals may respond pretty differently to those just based on your own brain chemistry. Um, so if you want to stay on the safer side, you stay in those medications that don't cross the blood-brain barrier, don't get into your brain, can't sedate you if they're not there, mm-hmm. um, and and um, and hopefully have the same beneficial effect on your symptoms of your right. allergies. <laughs> um, the, um, th- it's a totally appropriate question to talk to your doctor about. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we've investigated several um, accidents where it's clear that the physicians taking care of the individual did not know what their occupation was mm. and prescribed medications that they might not have prescribed had they known the person was a commercial school bus driver. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the uh, 
the, uh, the, that, that issue of can I go to work, Doc, right? Should I go to work in this situation? It really matters what your work is, uh, and that's something to consider. And it matters how you get there. Right? right. I mean, if you're sitting on the metro, you're probably okay to be a little impaired, um, as opposed to somebody who's, you know, driving, operating the metro right. train. Right. right? <laughs> Speaking of you, you talked a little bit earlier about um, uh, hours of service and what employers should should do, um, and what they should have is a fatigue risk management program or plan. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, any of you the effectiveness of having a solid fatigue risk management program and what that would include? Right. Sure, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, well, so in commercial operations, there in in almost all of the um, commercial transport that that we work with on a day to day basis, there are some fundamental regulations about work hours. So that's kind of the the safety net, if you will, the very basic foundation of um, fatigue management. So the idea that you need a certain amount of time off every day to allow for sleep, and you need not to work so many hours that you are too drowsy to to do your work. But that's the bare minimum, really. Mm-hmm. Um, what we'd really like to see is to have <clears throat> industries and companies go beyond that. And what that means it can mean using scheduling practices that are even better than that. Um, most hours of service regulations don't account for time of day, but that's so important. Mm-hmm. So companies can look at uh, look at their schedules that they're doing for employer employees and think about what that means in terms of allowing people to get good rest. They can have policies that allow people to call in if they are fatigued. We have policies that allow people to call in sick. But many companies don't have policies that would allow somebody to say, I didn't get enough sleep last night for whatever reason, and I'm not safe to operate a vehicle. Some progressive organizations are doing that in a non-punitive way, and it's paying off for them. Because number one, it, it keeps that unsafe person from operating a vehicle. Mm-hmm. And number two, it can allow them to potentially get to the bottom of a problem that might be an underlying or systematic problem. Maybe the problem is that the individual has a sleep disorder, or maybe the problem is that the sleep environment that is being offered, maybe the hotel that they're using for their company drivers has a lot of noise. So it helps them to potentially get to the bottom and understand. So by having a program by training uh, all all levels of the organization about fatigue, about how to manage fatigue, and by having some of these things, including a, a, a sleep disorder screening treatment and program. And that's mm-hmm. another f- fundamental thing that any organization can do, even just to get that screening available to their employees can help them to, to find out if they, they do need medical attention. And so all of these things can not only improve safety, but they can also reduce um, sick leave. And, um, you know, we've seen, we've seen uh, instances where companies have told us that this is good for their bottom line, too, that they are actually seeing benefits, not just in the safety arena. So um, certainly the NTSB has a long history of pushing for uh, fatigue risk management programs above and beyond what the uh, regulations, the bare minimum that the regulations uh, have in store. Sure. I know last week, 
I had an opportunity to hear a few companies that were talking about their um, fatigue risk management programs. And one of the, the companies mentioned that they even looked at their operations, some of the things that they were having done overnight um, shifts and stuff to see if the work that was being done in that time really was something that had to be done overnight or if they could move those operations to during the day. And they found that in some cases they could just eliminate some overnight work that they were doing, that there was no reason they couldn't have shipped it, you know, to a daytime shift. Yeah, that's uh, exactly the kind of thing that a company can can do. They can look at their operations and they can and they can take a look at when are problems happening. You know, if they're collecting data, um, you know, some companies are, are even um, looking at having technologies in the vehicles that can monitor um, driver performance and lapses so that they can hone in on when those t- types of problems might be happening. Near misses that can help you look more closely and try to prevent the crash before it even happens. I know a couple of other things that they were looking at too was um, commute times. And I think we've unfortunately seen in some situations, I think across all modes, where someone's commute time to their place of, of work actually impacted their their opportunity for sleep, um, good sleep, and actually played a role in in the cause of an, a crash. I feel like I'm thinking of an aviation one specifically. And then also, I think, is it Cranberry, New Jersey, I think, where that was a yes. case? Yeah, it was, yes. it was Cranberry, New Jersey that comes to my mind. But one of the things I just want to highlight that Jana said that I think is really important and sometimes not, um, not so visible in companies is the need to include medical conditions, not just sleep conditions, but medical conditions and their treatment mm-hmm. inside the fatigue risk, mis- mi- fatigue risk management plan. So oftentimes in a company, the safety people and the medical people don't, don't meet, they don't talk. Mm-hmm. They think they have nothing to do with one another. And in reality, we believe that med- appropriate management of medical issues is critical for a transportation company to be have a good safety record to be safe. Sure. Is there so, a particular in? Oh, go ahead. Go oh, ahead, I Jen. was just going to say on the topic of commuting that Stephanie brought up that that is an issue. It's both an issue in terms of um, you know sometimes people travel a, a long distance to get to their to their workplace, and um, you know some companies when they ask people to travel in. Um, will provide a hotel room for that person before they go on a shift mm-hmm. if, if, if that kind of um, work is really necessary for that person to, to travel far to do the work. So I guess the point I would want to make is that fatigue risk management doesn't necessarily say that you can't do things. It's about looking at ways to do them safely and, and planning in for that safety in advance, anticipating when fatigue could be a problem, and planning ahead to mitigate it. Would you say that there's a particular industry that has been successful in the fatigue risk management? I think the um, FAA, the the aviation industry with pilots, the FAA several years ago um, put in some very uh, advanced, stringent fatigue requirements. Mm -hmm. One of the problems you have in the aviation industry is People like to get onto a flight in Newark, New Jersey, and fly all the way to Mumbai, India. Mm-hmm. So not only do you have the issue of it's a long flight, it's like maybe 16 hours, but also the sun when you land is right. not where your body thinks it should be at right. that time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the issue was how do you make sure that the pilots on those flights are 
um, not being affected by fatigue. Mm -hmm. And the airlines create fatigue management plans that take into account the many challenges between the changes in time zones, the length of the flight, what it takes to recover. They do all these things. They submit those to the FAA. The airlines collect data on their pilots to prove to the FAA that they are um, still not being adversely affected by fatigue, and the FAA evaluates that on a continuing basis. So mm -hmm. in my personal opinion, that's been an excellent example of fatigue risk management plans that allow for these fatigue-inducing operations to occur, but in a safe way. I would say, I would imagine, that um, aviation... Uh, commercial aviation is probably the main place that the general public might see a fatigue risk management program in play. Because I know I've been on an airplane that may have been delayed for whatever reason, and then everyone boards, and then the pilot comes over and says, I'm sorry, folks, we have exceeded our hours of service, so we need to wait for a new crew or what have you. And it feels like a major inconvenience to passengers, right? But the alternative, obviously could be disastrous. So, you know, I, you know, knowing this and knowing how fatigue can impact people, I do my best to, you know, take a deep breath and just be like, okay, well, that's fine. Let's wait until a better rested crew is available so that we can get to our destination safely. I think I, I've, <laughs> I've, had that, I've had that personal experience on, on the railroad. I used to ride mm -hmm. a commuter train to my home, and there was one day we were stuck behind a slow freight train and all of a sudden, my train just stopped, and we were sitting there for, for a couple of minutes, and then they came on and announced that the crew had exceeded their time on duty, mm -hmm. and they had to sit there and wait for another crew to come and relieve them. Right. So with my professional experience, I was uh, glad that they were doing that with my personal experience. I just wanted to get home because I yeah. was fatigued. <laughs> I know. We're all tired. We want to get to where we're going to want to go, but at the same time, we want to arrive there safely. So I, think, I think I'll just add to sure. the, what Jeff said about aviation, that I, I agree that the program that the Federal Aviation Administration has for looking at fatigue management and really systematically evaluating it is, is impressive. Um, in, in other industries, I think um, there are some real star players in, mm -hmm. in the mix, um, mm -hmm. but then... I think one thing that, and one thing that those star players even recognize is that they are continuously trying to improve their programs. Mm -hmm. So, so I think across the industry, there's always room for improvement. Um, but I think that yeah, aviation has 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 shown a way that we can look more systematically at some of these programs. And, and I think an effective fatigue management plan is not a static thing. It's not something you put into effect right. and it lasts for. 10 years, it sure. would be something that you would be continuously evaluating and updating based on what you learn. Sure. So we've talked about, you know, sleep and fatigue in the commercial and professional transportation environments. And as kind of some closing thoughts for the everyday driver, people who aren't in the transportation industry, but you know, are, are sharing the roads and, and with us, what are some kind of takeaway points that they, they could remember on just managing their, their own sleep? Um, you know, Mary Pat, you mentioned some things that you should do with talking to your medical professional. So if there's any kind of final thoughts for just everyone on, on making sleep a priority as we're in the midst of sleep awareness week. 
Sure. I think one of the most important things is the stuff that doesn't work, that has been scientifically proven to not work. Rolling down the windows doesn't work. Turning on the radio louder doesn't work. Okay. Um, caffeine can mitigate fatigue for a period of time. And then, unfortunately, the need for sleep takes over and you sort of fall off the cliff. Um, so that can be useful. But if you think you're fatigued and you're about to engage in some behavior, such as driving your car, even home from work, um, that is potentially dangerous, the thing to do is take a nap. That's the solution. The solution is sleep. The solution is not something else. Um, the real solution is to go ahead, take a nap, awake with less of a sleep debt, having filled your sleep gas tank, um, and then perform the activity, drive home, whatever it may be. And this is particularly true if you find yourself doing things like hitting the rumble strip, mm -hmm. right? Hitting the rumble strip from fatigue means you're microsleeping. It means mm -hmm. you're inattentive and you're probably mi uh, actually microsleeping. Um, and, and that's a very dangerous level of fatigue. Mm -hmm. Pull over. Take a nap. You know, 20 minutes of 30 minutes of sleep in that situation is probably enough to let you get safely home. I, th I think recognizing that sleep is something you need. Sleep is not something you can tough it out and, and get by and skip and, and reduce it because you're working hard and you want to be a high achiever. Sleep is just, just like, as Dr. Rosekind said, just like water, just like food. It is a physiological need and you cannot eliminate it. You cannot tough it out. You mm -hmm. need to get it get it on a regular basis and make it part of your life. So I think, I think these, my, my uh, fellow guests did a fantastic job of summarizing it. Um, we talked about the, the gas tank analogy. I'll just go back to my, uh, my 15 year old daughter and say uh, an analogy that might work better for her and her age group is the cell phone battery. Um, <laughs> you know, I can tell you that, um, you know, if, if my daughter sees that her cell phone battery is at, 10%. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want to leave the house. She wants to wait a while and charge her battery before we leave the house. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you think ahead about your reserves and what you know about yourself and about your capabilities and what we've learned today about what people need for sleep, um, then I think that that can help you, you know, make the right plans. And another thing I would want to allude to is. You know, here we are, it's March, um, it's just about time for our spring break. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people are going to be having spring break um, coming up soon. And, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of families and schools and, you know, some people say, oh, we're really looking forward to spring break. We're going to drive through the night, go to Disneyland mm -hmm. and have yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm the first to say, you know what, take that, take that extra day. Drive during the day, sleep in a hotel along the way. You'll have a lot more fun. You'll be a lot more relaxed. You'll be a lot more rested when you get there. And you're not going to take the risk of having a very serious crash. Um, so sometimes just having that extra, inserting that extra thought about, you know, staying safe. People all, everyone knows you shouldn't drink and drive, but mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not as intuitive for people right now to think about that they shouldn't be sleep deprived and drive, right. but but it should be just as intuitive. Yeah, lack of sleep equals impairment, um, not by substance, but by you know just your body being off. And in addition to spring break, 
um, you know, as this podcast is released, it will have been a few days since daylight savings took place. And so everyone um, just is going to be operating on an hour less of typical sleep. And so we hope that everyone that's listening and everyone in general is taking care and getting that extra rest um, to get themselves kind of readjusted and realigned to the time change. Um, any final thoughts from you, Stephanie, before I we do. wrap up? I do have a final thought. So okay. uh, do a, we'll give a little plug for a training course that we have coming up in July. So if anybody would like to learn more about how um, the NTSB investigates human fatigue factors, you can um, go to our webpage, ntsb.gov, and look for the training center link. And the course uh, information and registration is there. I think it's July 9th and 10th um, this year out in Ashburn, Virginia. And also, we mentioned it before, but go ahead and check out Jana's podcast from about a year ago where mm -hmm. you can learn a little bit more about her um, and her background and, and her work here at NTSB. And just final thought here, um, I don't think it was actually mentioned, but in our 2019-2020 Most Wanted list of transportation safety improvements, we have reduced fatigue-related accidents as well as require medical fitness involving screening and treating um, obst obstructive sleep apnea. So those are two issues that, again, um, we find as part of our most wanted list and we need actions and we've outlined certain recommendations that could improve these issues um, if they were acted upon. So I want to thank our guests one more time for joining us today. This has been a really great discussion. Sleep is one of my favorite things. <laughs> I want to thank James for being an awesome producer and making us sound good and thank my co-host Stephanie Shaw, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye.